If you entrust me with the presidency, I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. It's time for us to come together. United, we can and will overcome this season of darkness in America. My fellow Americans, tonight I profoundly accept this nomination for President of the United States. Hello everyone, welcome to RCB for the fourth episode of the second season of The Battle for Washington. These podcasts continue as the campaign is in a home stretch and before all, very uncertain to have a proper unfolding. Today, I have the chance to introduce you to Ashish, an American 1A that is now part of the RCB team. And you all will have the pleasure to discover new faces and new voices in a few days. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. Trump is back in the headlines today. In a recent press conference, he refused the offer of any kind of digital debate putting into question any new confrontations between the two candidates for the White House. In this episode, we were also delighted to have Jeffrey Hawkins, a former U.S. ambassador and a teacher at Sciences Po. He will provide his vision on the current domestic situation in the U.S. and give his opinion on the effect of four years of Trump's foreign policy. Now is the time to leave the stage for the battle for Washington. Twenty twenty American elections. This is the battle for Washington. Before we get the chance to interview Jeffrey Hawkins, let's begin with the news. The vice presidential debate took place Wednesday night in Salt Lake City with rather high expectations. After last Tuesday's presidential debate, voters were lost and dazed after witnessing a rough, almost fistfight style of debate for a full 90 minutes. This vice presidential debate was, as expected, more organized with both candidates more able to articulate their specific programs and plans for the White House. It was civil, conventional, and not especially scintillating or cataclysmic. Nevertheless, the debate started with a degree of tension, as can be seen from Senator Kamala Harris's opening statement. Well, the American people have witnessed what is the greatest failure of any presidential administration in the history of our country. Those words sum up what could be the strategy for Democrats in the next four weeks, direct and constant criticism of Trump's handling of the coronavirus. Kamala Harris looks straight to the camera, to the American people, enunciating all damning data. 210,000 dead people in our country in just the last several months. Over 7 million people who have contracted this disease. One in five businesses closed. We're looking at frontline workers who have been treated like sacrificial workers. We are looking at over 30 million people who in the last several months had to file for unemployment. She accused the administration of negligence and of murdering the truth. And they knew what was happening and they didn't tell you. Can you imagine if you knew on January 28th, as opposed to March 13th, what they knew, what you might have done to prepare? They knew and they covered it up. And of having no clear path forward. And in spite of all of that, today they still don't have a plan. They still don't have a plan. Well, Joe Biden does. The Republican strategy remains as it has been since August. Trump and Pence are behind in the polls and losing the confidence of more and more as their handling and cleanup of the COVID crisis continues to spiral out of control. It is this desperation that has driven Trump's campaign to be so vitriolic. They're trying to redefine the nature of this context, trying to take attention away from the steady stream of calamity that has come to define his tenure as president. Mr. Pence has few strong answers. He acknowledged the very challenging time the nation has been through while trying to focus on some of the administration's early actions, like, for example, suspending travel from China, giving the image of a nowhere and pertinent response. 
Furthermore, he attempted to co-opt the Biden plan, claiming that Trump's plan achieved much of the same. When I look at their plan that talks about advancing testing, creating new PPE, developing a vaccine, um, it looks a little bit like plagiarism, which is something Joe Biden knows a little bit about. Pence also refused to accept any fault for the COVID super-spreading event, expressing no regret for being part of the nomination ceremony for Judge Amy Cohen Barrett, which is now known to be responsible for coronavirus cases at the highest level of federal government. At one point, Mr. Pence was also pressed on how the Trump administration would protect coverage for pre-existing conditions if it succeeded in proceeding a court to throw out the Affordable Care Act of Barack Obama's landmark piece of legislation that expanded health care access and rights for millions of Americans. And Vice President Pence completely ignored this question, pivoting to talk about the Supreme Court and abortion. In fact, what stood out of this debate is that Pence ignored many, many times the specific questions that were being asked and chose to pivot away. The only instance in which Kamala Harris seemed to be cornered was when she started to discuss the Supreme Court, with Republicans trying to fill the seat before Election Day. But Pence turned the question onto Kamala Harris. Your party is actually openly advocating adding seats to the Supreme Court, which has had nine seats for 150 years, if you don't get your way. This is a classic case of if you can't win by the rules, you're going to change the rules. Mr. Pence asked Mrs. Harris directly several times to answer the question, and she declined. This is the same posture Mr. Biden had previously adopted, on the basis that it would create a short-term distraction benefiting Mr. Trump in the election. Two truths are at play here. Giving a straight answer on expanding the Supreme Court would generate headlines that the Biden campaign would prefer to avoid, and the Democratic policy is certainly not established at this point. Finally, and perhaps the most frightening point, they discussed a commitment for a peaceful transfer of power. We are aware of Trump's attitude of wait and see with suspicion, but Pence made no definite statement on the matter. He evaded a question on his role if the president lost the election and wouldn't commit to a peaceful transfer of power. President Trump has several times refused to commit himself to a peaceful transfer of power after the election. If Vice President Biden is declared the winner and President Trump refuses to accept a peaceful transfer of power, what would be your role and responsibility as vice president? What would you personally do? You have two minutes. Well, Susan, first and foremost, I think we're going to win this election. Because while uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris rattle off a long litany of the establishment in Washington, D.C., an establishment that Joe Biden's been a part of for 47 years, when you talk about accepting the outcome of the election, um, I, I must tell you, uh, Senator... Your party has spent the last three and a half years trying to overturn the results of the last election. It's amazing. Now we are moving forward to the second part of this episode. It is our honor to have Jeff Okins, a former U.S. ambassador, on our show. Hello, sir. Hi, how are you? Fine, and you? <laughs> Good. First, let me do a quick summary of your background for the listeners at home. After graduating from Berkeley, you studied your career in the State Department in 1994. You worked in diplomacy in Asia, Europe, and Africa. In 2015, you were appointed as the U.S. Ambassador in the Central African Republic. But in 2017, you resigned. You are now teaching at Sciences Po, specifically on diplomacy in the present moment. All right. For our first question, let us travel back to 2017, when you resigned from your post as a diplomat to the Central African Republic. You did this less than a year after the election of Donald Trump. Uh, were these events related? Oh, of course they were, yeah. I, I mean, um, as, as your listeners probably know, the, the United States has a, a rather unusual hybrid system for ambassadorships. 
And so uh, some percentage of our ambassadorships are political appointees. Um, we're all appointed by the president, but some people are appointed because they're close to the president or a, a donor to the campaign or something like that. And then usually a much larger percentage of, of our ambassadors are, are, are uh, career diplomats like myself. Um, and, you know, as career diplomats, we're used to these political changes. Uh, administrations come and go and we are uh, enjoined by law uh, to be apolitical and we, and we remain that way. And so um, the, you know, the question of who was president uh, never really came up for me prior to the 2016 election. And I, and I have to say, like many Americans, I sort of watched that campaign with growing horror and, and uh, really um, as, as the Trump campaign took off and then as, as as Donald Trump was elected president of the United States, I, I was quite um, concerned by the fact that, that his his views, his his approach, his approach to foreign policy and domestic policy were so out of sync uh, with with my own. Uh, and and so for a while, I thought I was going to tough it out. A lot of us uh, diplomats sort of felt that way. You know, the the idea that you know even if you don't agree with the president, the system needs good people on the inside. Um, and over the course of, of several months, I, I sort of watched things like the Muslim ban or, or uh, you know, Donald Trump's discussion of the, the wall with Mexico and all the rest. And, and I, I just found that I could not do my own job with integrity. You know, I, I found that, that uh, in, in, even in my remote corner of Africa where I was working, uh, you know, I was uh, trying to explain these policies to the president of the country, the prime minister, government ministers. Um, trying to uh, explain them to, to my, my colleagues, other ambassadors, uh, and trying to process it with the own, my own staff and in the embassy. And I just, I, I could not square my own views, opinions, and, and, and values with those that the president were demonstrating. And so, um, like so many of my colleagues, I ultimately decided to leave and I haven't looked back since. I see. So kind of as a follow-up to that, um, have your thoughts on that decision, how, how have they changed it all since then? And also, would you ever consider a return to the State Department under a non-Trump administration? Well, I mean, uh, I have to say with, with every day that passes, my, my um, uh, resolve uh, increases. I mean, uh, I, I think back to, to, to 2017 when I left the State Department, you almost think of that as a, as a, as a more, uh, you know, peaceful, quieter time with all the, the chaos and turbulence that, that, that's happened since um, and, and the secretaries of state that, that we've gone through uh, since that time. Uh, you know, somebody like Rex Tillerson, who was secretary of the state at the time, uh, was no friend of, of bureaucrats like mine and really did a lot of damage to the to, to the to the organization but I think he was somebody that probably tried to approach the job with some integrity and I look at Secretary Pompeo now who seems so clearly in lockstep with the president in so many ways in ways again that I just don't agree with that that I feel quite happy uh, that I'm not there and that I don't have to, to defend that and and you know when I when I think about it in my mind like the the, the classic example for me is you know, I imagine my colleagues in Geneva at the World Health Organization, right, or uh, working with the UN in this time of COVID, having to explain to the Indian ambassador or the or the French ambassador that the United States was pulling out of the international uh, health organization in the midst of an international, you know, epidemic, pandemic, 
and, and that America was abdicating leadership on an issue as crucial as life or death uh, for so many people, um, bec- you know, essentially on a, on a whim of the president or to cast political blame for, for his own, you know, missteps uh, on, on, on the virus. And, and I'm just so glad I'm not there. Now, would I go back? Um, you know, I'm retired now. I'm doing other things. I live in France with my family. So I, I think that's that's unlikely. But, you know, hey, uh, if called, I'd serve. Sure. Mm. So we can continue with some questions on the U.S. elections and then move on to uh, international relations questions. So uh, I think you had a, a week to think about this. But what were your initial thoughts on the presidential debate last week? God, I, th- I thought it was an absolute disgrace. I, I was ashamed to watch that. Um, the president's behavior, I, I don't think, was a surprise for anyone. And, and um, uh, I found it way outside the norms of, of, of you know, uh, presidential discourse. I was a little disappointed with, with former Vice President Biden also. You know, I, I don't think it's appropriate to tell the president of the United States to shut up, man. You know, even if, uh, you know, that, that rejoinder may or may not been, have been deserved. Um, but essentially, you know, the real problem with that debate is there was absolutely no discussion, zero discussion mm. of the really crucial issues that are, that are before the American people right now. Um, and I, I think, generally speaking, uh, certainly the punditry in, in, in Washington and New York and places like that responded very negatively to that debate. But the sense I have also um, is the American people have responded negatively, and, and ne- uh, negatively to that. And, and some of the initial polling that you've seen over the past week suggests that that you know trump's belligerent uh, belittling style uh something that we've kind of come to expect from him really didn't uh, win any uh favor with with some some key swing voters and independents and uh people like that that he needs to either win over or people in his own on his own side that he needs to keep on side and 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 so uh i found the whole thing a disappointment and i think a lot of americans did also but what would you say has caused uh, such a shift in tone? Uh, I mean, I think y- y- you can look at, 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 a, at a number of long-term trends, right? I mean, there's, there's uh, the intense partisan polarization of, of, of the United States electorate, um, which Trump has exacerbated wildly, but, but didn't create, you know, and that's, I, I mean, I sort of look back to probably the Clinton administration and Newt Gingrich's contract with America. And that was, a, that was a time when you first really saw these stark partisan differences and Congress has been sort of torn apart in that uh, way ever since. And if you look at polling, I mean, uh, there, there is no middle in Congress anymore and there, there really isn't much of a, a middle in the electorate anymore. Um, so there's that. Obviously, there's, there's social media and fake news and the way that, that um, information has been transformed in the United States and the way that, that, that uh, you know, uh, we're all in these partisan bubbles that, that have a tendency to exaggerate and, and uh, amplify these partisan differences. And then you have to factor in, of course, the president's own unique personality and, and his sense that um, that is what his base is looking for, is somebody who's belligerent and tough and uh, uh, and doesn't let anyone get a word in edgewise and isn't interested in entertaining, um, you know, a, a dialogue with, with his opponent. He's just interested in, in crushing them. Um, and that's not really consistent in my, in my mind with, with, you know, a democratic process, a, 
an exchange of ideas that leads to an electorate making informed choices about leadership. I, I just don't see that as, mm-hmm. as healthy. Uh, and, I, and again, I think a lot of Americans share my views on that. Great. And uh, what of the vice presidential debate? H- how do you think Mike Pence is attempting to compensate for some of Trump's actions, both in policy and in the previous debate? Well, I mean, I think that uh, tone-wise, which, which, you know, the, the, the visuals of it have become so important in this kind of over-mediatized day and age, but, you know, tone-wise, it was much more like the old days, right? I mean, uh, yeah. so, you know, Mike Pence was governor of Indiana. He's, he's, he's used to that sort of discourse, and, 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 and he and, and uh, Senator Harris were, were, were more or less civil to each other, although the vice president did have a tendency to talk over his debate opponent. Um, uh, but in terms of the substance, we, we really didn't get much farther along. And, and um, frankly, there, there was, uh, you know, a good bit of exaggeration or mendaciousness or uh, subject changing in that debate. And, and, and even, even in, in a debate that was more civil in tone, I don't think we got that much farther along in terms of making a stark uh, difference between the two parties. I think part of the problem the Republican Party have has is, is it hasn't, beyond this sort of Trumpian kind of uh, show that's put on, I don't, I don't think they've given a lot of thought about what their policies are for a second administration. And, and the most telling part of that, you know, is, is the Republican Party's uh, dispensing with adopting a, 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 um, a platform, a party platform during its convention. You know, they just said, oh, yeah, we'll keep doing what we did last time. And the president has consistently been unable to sort of, you know, elaborate what his vision is for the future. And, and, and I think that came through, obviously, in his own debate with, with uh, Joe Biden, but also in the vice presidential debate as well. So uh, you wrote uh, an opinion column this week in Lopes, uh, where you argued that the media should not forget the emotional aspect of these elections uh, in, an America, in an America that is divided, scared and suspicious of the opposite camp. So can you elaborate a little bit more about uh, this statement? Yeah, no, I, I really see, you know, sort of internationally, I mean, and I, I guess I, I've started to see things in, in relatively stark terms, not, not only, you know, domestically in the United States, but internationally and, and sort of, you know, a camp of authoritarian states and, and populist nationalists on one side and, and, and sort of more tr- traditional democracies on the other. And I I consider France to be in that second um, and what I think uh, more honorable camp. Uh, And so I think it's really important that the French public uh, understand what's happening in America because I see France as a really key actor in in this whole thing. Um, And and the French pay a lot of attention to what's happening in the United States. I think think that the French are relatively well-informed about what's going on, about the facts. But my sense is, and talking to you know friends and neighbors and 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 watching French media, I don't think they get how existential a moment this is maybe for Americans, and how profoundly divided we are. Um, I think you know I think on some intellectual level they get it, but I don't think on an emotional level. And we are profoundly divided. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't people still you know going to Kmart and and doing their shopping and not giving a thought about Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Um, but so many people in America feel the immediacy of this moment in a way that just has never been true in my in my lifetime. Um, you know I mean uh, and and the divisions of American society are as deep as they were, you know, during the Vietnam War, or during the civil rights movement. I mean, 
we're really in, 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 uh, in a very emotional moment in the United States. And I think uh, in understanding what's happening in the U.S. and understanding the dangers of this moment, because uh, there's such mistrust and also this undercurrent of violence, you know, and we saw today uh, that the FBI has just broken up a plot to kidnap uh, the governor of you know, Michigan. I mean, it's, right. uh, it's, this is like, I mean, on uh, that idea of polarization, the intention was to start a civil war. That was their yeah, manifesto. I mean, this is a wild time in America. And, and it can't just be about how amusing Trump's behavior is or how, how irritated we are about, you know, uh, uh, his, uh, insulting this or that leader. It, it also needs to be about how, how deeply divided and how, um, in some ways, irrational the, the American um, uh, electorate has gotten, and, and as we as we move into the election, and and particularly the post electoral period, which I think a lot of people are concerned about, it's important to keep that in mind. And just how does it feel to observe all this, all this division, but from French? Wouldn't you like to be in America to be an actor, or is it hard to observe this from France? Well, I mean, yes and no. I, on the one part, I mean, France is is, is uh, a country that I'm really deeply attached to, and I, I'm I'm actually a French citizen as well as an American one, uh, and 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 I feel a sense of French patriotism as well as American patriotism, uh, uh, and I don't think being both is in is in any way uh, mutually exclusive, um, but in some ways it's a relief not to be in the, in the, bathed in that in that sort of tension all the time and to be watching it a bit from afar. It doesn't mean I'm not involved. You know, I certainly um, uh, try and talk about things here and, and uh, um, you know, do things like for the other day. I, I, I just learned a, a, someone that's very dear to me and my family is, is and a very reasonable person is, is considering voting for Donald Trump again uh, this year. And, and I wrote this person a three-page letter, you know, wow. uh, designed to sort of uh, appeal to her reason and, and, and suggest that, that although I'm sure she has valid reasons for, for wanting to go that way, that maybe she might want to reconsider those things. So even from afar, you're still, you know, one is still uh, keeping one's oar in the water. And that story definitely is, you know, captures <laughs> the polarization that we see. So... Um, As we speak, there are at least 35 confirmed cases solely from the White House. Uh, Trump was taken to Walter Reed Medical Center and has since been released. But there's still a sense of uncertainty that hangs on the status of him and his advisors. Um, how do you think the outbreak at the White House changes the view of the president and his COVID policy to the typical American voter? Well, I mean, obviously, we all know uh, the narrative that the president would like us to to adopt. And that is, oh, yeah, it's no big deal. And I beat it down and all the rest. Um, now, uh, I don't, uh, I don't know. I don't think I've seen any polling that's been done since, uh, the president got sick. I have a very hard time, um, uh, believing that that kind of, uh, argument will sway people that weren't already firm supporters of the president to begin with. Um, if you are making the case that, uh, we're doing everything to keep America safe from, from, from this terrible epidemic. Uh, and, you know, we're racing to uh, create uh, vaccines and, and, you know, the America, the health of Americans is absolutely our number one priority. Uh, to have your entire white house, senior staff, essentially your wife, you know, your spokesperson, 
spokesperson, your advisors uh, all come down with COVID because you were blatantly and publicly um, uh, irresponsible about about uh, some of the most basic measures to prevent uh, the propagation of the disease. I don't think that plays well. And of course, you know, we do have polling that says that the issue that, that Biden uh, just trounces Trump on is, you know, confidence that people have that he can manage that disease um, better than the president can. And when you see the entire White House shut down, and it's not just the White House, I mean, it's almost like some sort of bad dream, you know, the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff are all quarantined right now. You know, um, Congress is shut down, at least for the moment. I, I think Mitch McConnell will be wanting to get that going very soon. But, you know, at least three Republican senators as a result of what's been happening in the White House are COVID positive. That is not a good message if you're Donald Trump and you want to get reelected. Um, so he can, you know, he can mint a commemorative coin saying Donald Trump, uh, you know, victory over COVID. He can do that and he can tweet and do those things. I think that that kind of uh, argument is not going to be real persuasive for a lot of voters that are worried about COVID and in particular in some, some uh, demographics that are important to him and most notably older people. And that, you know, those are people that tend to vote Republican. Um, they supported him strongly in, in 2016. And, and a lot of older people are shocked by how cavalier um, he's been with this disease that could potentially kill them. And, and, and I don't think that's going to help. And about this, if we put this into perspective, so historically, American presidents gained popularity after recovering from illness in a show thrilling from a national figure, for example, Reagan or Eisenhower. And But do you believe that this effect will be repeated uh, for the present situation, considering that the COVID is a contagious disease and especially a disease that Trump tends to downplay, to treat very lightly. Well, I mean, again, there's the whole issue of responsibility and, and, and how he treated that. Uh, I, I think there's going to be a lot of Americans that, frankly, even if they wish the president well and, you know, hope that he recovers and everything, they sort of feel like the guy did get what he deserved. He sort of invited that uh, and, and, and that this was the logical outcome of his own irresponsibility. And when you talk about that, um, uh, Uh, that sort of bounce that presidents get when they recover for Ill, from, from illness or whatever. There, there's the key empathy, the issue of empathy in, in all that, right? Um, and, you, you know, you feel, you see the president's humanity, you feel for him, and you also, he also radiates that humanity back to you. And, you know, I'm obviously a sort of a democratic-leaning person, but I think back to Ronald, Ronald Reagan, right, when he was shot very early on in his presidency. And Um, he treated that with a lot of seriousness, but when he went to the hospital, he, you know, he made some jokes with the doctors. He said something like, Oh, I hope you're a Republican, aren't you? You know? And so we felt like his humanity was vulnerable. He'd been hurt. Um, and he was still sort of reaching out to people, even in that moment of crisis. Uh, if there is one word that is not associated with Donald Trump, it's empathy. Right. Um, and, and so it's hard for us to feel a lot of empathy when he's not even owning his own mm. personal experience around this disease, you know, and he just says, Oh, I feel better than I have in 20 years and everything. The guy has obviously been through a lot. He was in the hospital for three or four days. They administered steroids, which means according to the medical, you know, analysis I've seen in the newspapers, which means that the, the, the his situation was probably pretty severe. He quite clearly has had some trouble breathing and all the rest. I mean, if he had, owned that and, and, and talked about how difficult this was and expressed empathy um, to all the millions of people that have been uh, impacted by this disease and to the families of the hundreds of thousands that have died, 
people might radiate, reflect back empathy to him. But but I don't see that happening in an empathy-less uh, Trump White House environment. And thank you at home for listening to this podcast. Don't miss next week, the second and final part of the interview. RCB is available on every streaming platform. This has been The Battle for Washington, Season 2, Episode 4. See ya.